Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for closing argument in that iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up. You can join us this evening. The number is 651-989-5855. Brad Oman takes those calls and produces the show. We are joined in studio by Richard Painter, candidate, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate seeking the seat formerly held by Al Franken, currently held by Tina Smith. I got all that correct, didn't I? Absolutely. Fantastic. Now, there, there are a lot of serious topics that we need to dive into, and, and I want to get into who you are and what your campaign's about and your insights on the, the current moment in politics, of which I know you have many. But I want to start here. The dumpster fire ad. That was impressive. How did that come about? In term, what, like, what was the, the impetus behind? Were you just looking for a striking visual, or how did you feel like this is a, 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 an apt metaphor? What were your thoughts that led to that being the ad? Well, I uh, obviously thought Washington, D.C. is a bass. It's a real bass. Uh, and um, I, you know, I thought, what kind of analogy could I use? I could have used the toilet bowl, but I thought that wasn't too attractive. Uh, right. So I chose the dumpster fire. Sure, sure. Well, and it was definitely eye-catching and uh, got people's attention for sure. So you have quite the resume. In fact, you you may be um, the the most distinguished guest we've ever had just in terms of your professional background. You were on the Ethics Council for former President George W. Bush. Tell us more about that. What's involved in, in being on an Ethics Council? What kind of work was that? Well, most of my life I was a professor, a law professor, at the University of Oregon and University of Illinois and, and now the University of Minnesota, and I definitely want to stay in Minnesota. I just love living here. Mm-hmm. But I took two and a half years off um, in uh, 2005 to seven. Uh, I took a sabbatical to be the chief White House ethics lawyer. And uh, in that job, you would tell the people coming into the administration uh, what financial conflicts of interest they had to avoid. Uh, what stock they had to sell or invest other investments and business partnerships. A lot of it was hand-holding for very rich people. Uh, of course, most of the people come into both Democratic and Republican administrations or have a lot of investments. Right. And you got to tell them what they've got to sell, what they got to do to take the job and not have a conflict of interest. And it was enjoyable. I got to tell Hank Paulson, the incumbent treasury secretary, he had to sell $600 billion worth of Goldman Sachs stock to become treasury secretary. I, I felt bad for him. I'd never been in a situation where I had to sell $600 million worth of right. stock. I would have liked to have $600 worth, but anyway. Um, I bet he's glad he did, though. I mean, a uh, couple years later... It was, well, yeah. exactly. I got him out of the market in 2006. <laughs> By 2008, everything was down in the toilet bowl. Right. So uh, I think you ought to be grateful that I <laughs> told him to sell that stock. Honesty always pays. Ethics is a good thing. It saves you money. Well, absolutely right. Um, but Donald Trump doesn't want to sell his businesses. So we'll see what happens 
Uh, maybe he'll decide to get ethical and sell off his real estate empire, and then we know we're heading for a real crash. So this has been one of your chief complaints, at least in the research that I've done, um, particularly regarding Donald Trump, is his business conflicts of interest, as you see it. What is what's what distinguishes Donald Trump from any other president and you know other other public figures who have who you've advised or the types of figures who would require such advice what is he not doing that other people have how has he upended the table well his financial conflicts of interest is certainly very unique and uh, unfortunately this is on top of his other uh, difficulties understanding our constitution uh, the freedom of the press the free exercise of religion and equal protection of the laws and racism, some other problems we got in this White House. But let's put all that aside for a minute and talk about his financial conflicts. He has a very large business empire. He's doing business all over the world. Uh, and uh, the business he's doing with foreign governments is actually prohibited by the Constitution, which says you can't take profits and benefits from foreign governments. Is he unique in that respect? Is Is no other office holder engaged in those types of entanglements? I've never seen a president in this situation. And the uh, advice we always got from the State Department and other government agencies on the foreign government dealings is that the uh, uh, this provision of the Constitution is very strictly construed and uh, businesses, uh, you know, public officials are not supposed to own businesses that are dealings with uh, foreign governments. Now, private companies overseas, that's different. But the foreign governments, that is strictly prohibited under the Constitution. And so what's the recourse for that under the Constitution? Well, that's the trick. Uh, the Constitution just says you can't do it without the consent of Congress. So there are two different ways you can go. One is... A plaintiff can go to court and try and get a court to to order the president to comply with the Abiyabas Clause. I've done that with a group that I'm the vice chair of, that I was the vice chair of before I entered this election, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. But there's a standing question whether you really have standing to sue. Uh, the um, uh, the Maryland Attorney General brought a similar lawsuit. I helped with that. And the judge decided the Maryland attorney general did have standing to sue. So there's going to be some litigation over this in the courts. But where it also ought to be being dealt with is the United States House and Senate Judiciary Committee. They're supposed to be having hearings about whether this president is in compliance with the Constitution, uh, just like they did with Nixon in 1973-74. This situation is a lot worse than Nixon. And it isn't just the foreign government money. Uh, in violation of the Constitution, as I said, this president has some difficulties with the First Amendment, with due process, and well, we'll, we'll tick through we'll tick through those as we go along here this evening. I, I'm I'm interested in. I mean, it sounds to me, and I, if you have a different perspective, by all means, share it. But it sounds to me like ultimately this question of conflicts of interest becomes a political question because the the mechanism for enforcing it, quote unquote is ultimately congressional action, and, and obviously the Congress is politically determined, so it really does come down to what the results are this November. Am I reading that correctly? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I, I think it depends. I mean, the Republican Party uh, could also come to its senses and realize that it's not in the Republican Party's interest to have a president who's violated the Constitution, and certainly with this Russia thing. I mean, they, they had a minimum to investigate and find out what, if any, financial ties the president has with Russia. Uh, and this whole Russia thing needs to be taken very seriously. 
by the United States House and Senate, not just be put in, into the charge of Robert Mueller, because Robert Mueller can only look for criminal violations. That's his charge. Uh, so uh, if there's any Russian money in the Trump business empire, which a lot of people suspect, uh, we just have no idea what the facts are, but that's something the that Congress ought to figure out, because that's very serious. Uh, we're not just talking about technical violations of the Constitution. The founders weren't stupid uh, when it came to conflicts of interest, and they did not want anyone holding a position of trust in the United States government to be beholden to a foreign power. And uh, that's the situation we may very well be in right now, whether it's because of financial ties or whether it's because Vladimir Putin knows something about Donald Trump that he doesn't want people to know or whether it has to do with the, with the election in 2016 or all three of those. Uh, this is a very serious situation. Right so the, the specter of foreign influence is is one that, to, to some extent, has this sort of prima facie negative connotation to it. Obviously, we don't want our elected officials to be under foreign influence. We don't want them to be controlled by foreign powers. That should go without saying. However, if we, if we were to take for the sake of the ar- for argument the premise that there is some sort of illegitimate influence upon this White House and this president, how would you speculate that's played out in terms of the actual policy agenda? I mean, what is Trump doing that to you seems like it's being directed from the Kremlin? We just don't know what's going on because the House and Senate won't investigate. That's what's really quite shocking, that they won't have a serious investigation about the relationship between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, about President Trump and the Kremlin, any financial ties. So you just don't know what's going on uh, here. And it really, it's a very strange situation. We have a country that's an adversary of the United States that's been trying to undermine Western democracies for over 100 years. Um, since the Communist Revolution in 1917, they've been going at this game, and now they struck pay dirt. Uh, they never did with the left wing of the political spectrum, but they struck pay dirt out of the right wing. And um, we have a president who is... Uh, fawning over Putin. I mean, everybody seems to be shocked uh, about what's going on with Putin, and Congress needs to investigate. You may find some of it is a violation of the Constitution, some things are not, uh, uh, but other, but still we might be very, very concerned. Uh, but there's a relationship with a foreign power, and once again, the founders anticipated this but problem because they put some provisions in the Constitution to deal with it. One is this emoluments clause about profits and benefits from foreign governments, and the other, ironically, is a provision that says the President of the United States has to be a natural-born citizen. I mean, they were scared that uh, that somebody, you know, from some other country would come over here with a lot of money from right. a foreign ruler and establish themselves in business, get elected president. And, you know, what's really ironic about it is we heard all this nonsense from Donald Trump about uh, President Obama's birth certificate uh, you know, over that clause of the Constitution, which was designed to prevent a foreign national from so, becoming president. Let, let's back up just a little bit on this, this issue of the Helsinki summit and Trump's conduct in a press conference with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. You referred to his performance as treasonous, which is a fairly strong word. Do you stand by that description? I think the entire relationship with Putin and the uh, what happened at the Trump Tower meeting and all of that, I think, is is is, is treasonous behavior. The way people are saying the whole Russia thing is fake. 
he's undermining his own intelligence services and saying that, you know, that they that the, it's fake news that the Russians interfere with the election. And then he backtracks and then he says it again. Um, and he's covering for foreign agents who engage in a, an espionage operation inside the United States. Um, you know, I, I think this is 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 treasonous behavior. You've evoked the Constitution, particularly in regards to the, the question of having conflicts of interest while in office, uh, particularly as the president of the United States. The, the Constitution has a definition of treason, and that definition is levying war against the United States or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. That That is to give aid and comfort to the enemy. Is Russia an enemy of the United States? No, I don't think the with? constitutional, see, the constitutional definition of treason deals with a subset of treasonous activity that is uh, I- I- the most dangerous circumstances. And if you commit treason under the Constitution, uh, which I don't think that's, uh, we, we are at that point with Donald Trump, you okay. can admit treason under the Constitution, uh, and you're charged with treason under the Constitution, because you violated the Constitution there, that stands on equal grounds with the First Amendment and all the other protections you have. So, for example, if we declare a war against another country, in a state of declared war, if you actually encourage people just verbally to support that enemy of the United States, they could put you in jail and right. convict you of treason. But that's not the situation that we find. Well, exactly. See, that's the point, is there's a lot of treasonous conduct that took place in the Cold War. For example, people selling secrets to the Russians. People were executed for selling secrets to the Russians. The nuclear bomb, for example. But no one was ever charged with treason. So everybody who committed treasonous acts against okay. the United States during the entire Cold War, including people like the Rosenbergs who were executed, uh, uh, you know, and charged and convicted, were never charged with treason on the Constitution. The reason this is so important to understand is that unless we're in a state of an actual hot war, declared war, uh, you want to charge people under the ordinary statutes, such as espionage. I got you. Or uh, computer hacking, or use of hacked emails after the fact, so or lying what, about contacts with the Russians. I understand your point, that you're saying that your use of the word treason is effectively a rhetorical device in order to indicate the severity of what you see to be criminal. Well, yes, but it is treasonous conduct, but unless we're in a state of emergency, a declared war, an insurrection such as the Civil War, where President Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus so people could be put in prison uh, uh, just for saying they supported the South, uh, just put in prison, and they might die in prison simply for saying they supported the South, you know, you do not want to use the treason provision of the Constitution. The founders intended that provision only to be used in the most dire emergencies. Otherwise, we do things like, for example, Alger Hiss was sent to jail for four years merely for lying in 1940s about his contact with a man who was a Russian agent, uh, an American, Whitaker Chambers, who had been working with the Russians, the communists. And he simply lied about his contact right. with Whitaker Chambers. Four years in prison, and yet think of the number of Americans in, high up in the Trump administration who have lied about their contacts with the Russians, and some of them are still serving in office, including our Attorney General. All right, well, That, we'll, to me, is what's shocking. We'll invite the listeners to call in and join our conversation, 651-989-5855. Richard Painter is our guest in studio, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.
backfire, but he's got a plan for putting it out. Richard Painter, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate, seeking the seat formerly held by Al Franken, currently held by Tina Smith, in studio with us this evening on Closing Argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. You can join us at 651-989-5855 with questions or comments for Mr. Painter. We've got Anthony from St. Paul on the line. Appreciate you calling. Hey, thank you so much for taking my call. And I just want to say I appreciate the fact that Mr. Painter would uh, come on here and express his views and that you would allow... Uh, someone that's uh, different, so so much different than uh, you know yourself to come on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of the point I want to make is Russia has been meddling in elections for many many years, and if you want to really go back into history, I believe it was in the 1960s where the where the Kremlin actually funded an entire presidential campaign. However. That nothing, nothing of the sort has has happened here, and Democrats have completely stood by uh, President Obama when I believe he was caught on a hot mic telling the ambassador that uh, to tell Vladimir that he would be more uh, flexible after the election. So right. I don't know why there is all this obstruction of justice, and you know, Trump's an illegitimate president. When you know Democrats wholeheartedly stand by and don't even really acknowledge what happened with the last presidency, I just and many other people just feel like this Russia thing is being used as an excuse for losing a winnable election. If they just wouldn't have went with Hillary, that's what a lot of people think. All right, I appreciate your thoughts, Anthony. We are short on time with this this segment, unfortunately, and I'll I'll uh, reframe to get a response from Mr. Painter. So the the part that Anthony uh, recited there that I want to latch on to and get your response to, Richard Painter, is the comparison between what Donald Trump did in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin and what Barack Obama did with Medvedev uh, on a hot mic where he said, listen, I'm up for re-election. This was in 2012. And if you guys take it easy on me, I'll have more flexibility to deal with you after the election. But just, you know, give me a break. You are a former Republican, now a Democrat. What was your feeling at the time, and how does that scenario with Obama and Medvedev differ from Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin? Well, we, I mean, the Obama situation is very typical of a lot of presidents who, in their relations, their dealings with foreign countries, uh, what they do, what they don't do, is very much influenced by domestic politics. And anything involving, for example, Israel, very, very potentially explosive in the United States. And politicians are infamous from both political parties of having a different stance on the Middle East before elections and after, and then they go back to their former stance. And so, you know, it's not great to be caught on a hot mic telling a foreign leader that that's what's going on, but they all know that's going on. And it's been that way for a very long time, that uh, Americans have very strong views about certain foreign countries and what we should do vis-a-vis whether it's Iran or Russia or whatever the situation is. Uh, before elections versus after. That's very different than a country uh, infiltrating an election the way the Russians have for years in other countries, and they undermine democracies, usually by supporting communist parties between the two world wars, 
and then again after World War II, and they destabilized Europe. They've destabilized many parts of the world. That's what the Cold War was about, and that's how we actually got sucked into things like Vietnam because of this sort of covert activity the Russians were engaged in. And now, finally, they've done it here in the United States. They have not successfully done that in the United States. They supported the Communist Party. They tried. But we just don't have a left wing that is big enough. Uh, and labor unions had nothing to do with the communists. Uh, so here's my question coming out of that. If, if they were seeking to support the Communist Party in the past, which I don't dispute. I mean, it makes sense, right? What are they getting now in their presumed, for the sake of argument, support of Donald Trump and support of the GOP generally? How is that serving the same end as trying to support the Communist Party was back in the day? We see they support the fringes. They didn't support the establishment candidates in the GOP. Uh, they supported the fringes and they poured money into also in social media, right wing outfits, racist outfits, other uh, types of uh, operations. They actually so continue to support the far left in the United States covertly as well. In they your, want, in your mind, they want chaos in the United States. Well, that's and that's what I was going to ask: is in your mind, to what end? And uh, chaos. I, I would agree with you that that seems to be the overall objective. Well, yes, and they also want to destroy Western alliances. So they love it when you have the European Union falling apart, people preaching against globalization. Oh, what globalization means is the West. Western Europe and the United States and Japan and the democracies and increasingly China starting to participate uh, in a, a global economy. Uh, the Russians hate that. Uh, and they feel shut out by the European Union. So they wanted to take apart the European Union. They supported Brexit. All this talk about economic nationalism, anti-globalization. They love that. The whole Steve Bannon uh, thing that is not the traditional Republican Party. These are far right extremists. They're not normal Republicans. Uh, uh, they are far right extremists, and unfortunately, they've, they you know the, President Trump has taken over a lot of the Republican Party now, and that's why a lot of people are leaving. But uh, the Russians uh, do not want Western democracies to hang together. So when the president says the European Union is the real enemy of the United States. And then goes and uh, cuddles up to Vladimir Putin. That's what they want. They love the tariffs that are being proposed, where countries, instead of trading with each other and cooperating with each other, will build up tariff walls. This whole emphasis on ethnic nationalism, uh, you know, and white supremacy. They love that. The use of religion. Uh, they're rediscovering, of course, in the communist era, they, they shunned the church, but now they want to use the church, but they, they don't go to traditional religions. They they go to the far-right extreme elements in the United States. And they had an agent who tried to infiltrate these various uh, extremist uh, uh, so-called Christian groups that are in the far, far fringes of Christianity. All right, so a, a number of the things you've ticked off uh, uh, point by point, I actually find myself in a fair amount of agreement with you. What I'm interested in is how you've come to the conclusion that you have that the answer to all of it is to switch political parties and seek an office in U.S. Senate as a Democrat and to, and to, and to through 
along with that, support everything that the Democrats are for. Or maybe you don't. We'll find out when we return. 651-989-5855. Mike, Jason, John, we'll get your questions or comments in here with Richard Painter running for U.S. Senate on Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, twincitiesnewstalk.com. Richard Painter, candidate for U.S. Senate, running as a Democrat, seeking the seat formerly held by Al Franken, currently held by Tina Smith, in studio with us tonight on Closing Argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at and your iHeartRadio app. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show, and we've got a few people lined up with questions and comments for our in-studio guest, Richard Painter. Let's start with Jason in Anoka. Welcome to the program. Thanks for holding. Uh, yeah. Hi. Um, I just wanted to make the comment first that uh, we've heard about Russia since day one. We'll probably hear about it till the end. Nobody uh, really cares, and I don't think any evidence or lack of evidence that came forward would be enough to satisfy the left anyway. But my question would be, I've heard a lot of talk about extremists on both sides and keeping that in mind my question would be is there anything that mr painter uh agrees with that trump has done and i'll take my answer up here appreciate the call it's a very good question is there anything trump's doing that's right i don't know he keeps changing his mind on an awful lot of stuff uh yeah he's made some some good appointments he nominates some for the office of government ethics uh, Emory Rounds, uh, who used to be my deputy in the White House. I think Emory will be good in that job. So not all of his appointments are awful. Um, uh, the problem is who he's trying to appeal to. He's really trying to appeal to the, the, the lowest common denominator in his society. And the Republican Party used to, uh, you know, try to appeal to, uh, you know, intelligent people who understood the facts not just the fake news and uh, the real facts and that Russia interferes with Western elections and Western democracy has been known for a hundred years. And uh, I'm just shocked that, that people don't think it's a problem so, along with a lot of the other things that have been said. I mean, the, the way the president tweets, I mean, people don't think this is abnormal. Uh, they just aren't thinking. Well, recognizing that I think we can't, we, we ought to be able to agree that a person does not get elected president of the United States without a diverse coalition of people voting for him and supporting him or her. And in this case, you know, the idea that would you characterize, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would you characterize every single person who voted for Donald Trump as being the lowest common denominator? No, and that's the key here, is that when voters are confronted with a choice in November, uh, the, um, you know, the choice between two people, uh, and uh, the Republican Party primary had very few voters, relatively speaking, uh, and some problems with the other candidates, and Donald Trump able to sell his bill of goods uh, to uh, you know a quite extreme part of the electorate to win the Republican primary. So I would have to say an awful lot of Trump voters, not all, but a lot in the Republican primary held extremist views. When you get to November... Uh, and people are making decisions between the two people. 
Uh, you got a lot of people who voted for Trump. Uh, some of them say, well, let's give it a chance. Uh, maybe, he, you know, he talked during the campaign. He talked like Hitler. And I mean, that's what scared me. But maybe he will act like a normal guy and be a normal president. I mean, do you think that was actually the thought process that people were like, oh, he talks like Hitler, but let's give it a try? I think there are a lot of people who said, of course, a lot of stuff coming in his mouth is garbage. I mean, what he said about a judge being biased against him because the judge was Mexican-American and stuff about a Muslim. Muslim ban. I mean, I think a lot of people said, of course, it's garbage, but I will give it a shot. We don't want to have another Clinton. There were problems during the Clinton administration. I mean, isn't we that a pretty that. damning indictment of Clinton? If people yeah. are like, yeah, he sounds like Hitler, but yeah, I really don't want Hitler. I, there were people. I mean, people voted for it for all different reasons, uh, uh, you know, in the general election. Um uh, you know, and, and Clinton had just been through a very difficult uh, primary with Bernie Sanders and a lot yeah. of stuff going back and forth. And then the other thing I got to say that if any candidate's email is leaked to the public and the other candidate's email is not, uh, you know, and the Russians were in there doing a lot of that. Uh, that stirred things up. So there's a lot going on as to why people voted the way they did. Uh, and there are a lot of people who voted for Trump who would not support and who are not going to support again the stuff that's going on. Uh, you know, we have a president of the United States saying there are people on both sides or good people in Charlottesville. I and mean, that's just utter trash. I mean, you had people who were just skinheads and racists and uh, uh, coming into Charlottesville and, and trying to start a riot. And there weren't good people on both sides. That's right. just nonsense. All right. So we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about Donald Trump. I, I think not entirely without cause. I mean, Trump is obviously a, a provocative figure and is at the forefront of a lot of uh, Democratic thought these days. But we got a, a caller on the line, John from St. Paul, who actually has a question on policy that can steer us into talking about your campaign. John, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi, how you doing? I just wanted to uh, first commend Richard. I saw online that he's going to be holding an eight-hour Q and A. Wow! Live on on Facebook on Sunday. That's amazing. I commend him for that transparency. But uh, my question, uh, given that you've switched from the Republican to the Democratic Party, and there is a little bit of crossover on this issue, is the drug war. Uh, I also think it's fitting for this show. So, uh, wonder where you stand on the drug war. I'll hang up and listen. Appreciate the call, John. He wants to know where you're sitting with the continued evergreen war on drugs. Yeah, we're not winning that one. Um, uh, we really need to focus uh, more on uh, uh, try to get people into treatment or abusing drugs and uh, not focus as much on the criminal penalties, at least on the demand side, um, where people are put in prison, given prison sentences for using drugs. What you need to do is focus on the treatment. Uh, it's going to be a lot cheaper, a lot more effective. Uh, and then some drugs, such as marijuana, uh, a lot of states want to legalize and get out of the illegal trade. And uh, certainly the federal government needs to get out of the uh, business of trying to decriminalize marijuana. Jeff Sessions has better things to do or maybe he doesn't have better things to do, but he doesn't need to be running around being the pot police. Uh, you know, we just don't need that. So we, we need to rethink the whole approach to drugs uh, because somewhat similar to the alcohol problem. Yes, alcohol is a serious problem, but we tried banning it during Prohibition, and all people did is drink like fish. You just need to read an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel to know what was going on back then. And, you know, uh, I think the better approach is to, to the drug issue. All right. Well, on that topic, you sound like you could fill in for me any night here on Closing Argument. We're not big fans of the drug war here, uh, as was cited by the caller. 
We'll come back after a short break and wrap things up with our in-studio guest, Richard Painter, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate. I want to talk to him about the never-Trump phenomenon uh, of which both he and I have identified with in the past and get a, try to get a sense of what the spectrum of never-Trump thought looks like. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. with some ideas in here during the break. Got Jamar Nelson in here. He's uh, he's hanging out playing point man for Richard Painter, our studio guest, uh, who is the candidate for U.S. Senate running as a Democrat. And we were just talking during the break about the old days when Jason Lewis was running things from this studio. And of course, this studio is in quotes because he was actually piping in from his home studio in his house. And that's got to be nice, right? Like, I need to figure this out. I need to find out you know, what boxes I need to check in order to just phone this in, literally phone this in, and then go off the air and roll over and go to bed. That would be a nice deal. I'm going to have to look into that. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Oh, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We've been having a good time uh, talking with Richard Painter. I want to get to this call from Mike in Farmington. He's been holding for a good long time, and then we'll get into talking about uh, what Never Trump was and the different things that have come out of it. Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks for holding as long as you have. Yeah, thanks for taking my call, Walter. Um, And I've talked about this uh, with you before, but it's the what I see as kind of a lack of objectivity or self-reflection. So I see all this talk about Trump and Russia, but then when we when we go back and we look at what went on with Hillary and and uh. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe James Comey got some of his uh, start with the Clintons. So I think he's beholden to them. But we have this whole episode of servers and all these things that went on, and you have this cast of characters of Strzok, Rothstein, Page, all these things that went on during the election. And then I hear Democrats and their propaganda machine on MSNBC and CNN get all fired up and talk about integrity in the elections. But they seem to lack that self-reflection, and they don't seem to hold themselves accountable to the same rules. In other words, they can break all the rules they want, and that's fine. But Trump's basically demonized consistently. I I catch the thought, Mike, and we're short on time this segment. I appreciate your offering, and I'm going to get a response here from Mr. Painter. So, you know, you made the switch from Republican to Democrat. We really haven't explored that a whole lot as of yet. You know, do you have any reservations whatsoever about what you're taking on in terms of who you're now, you know, in bed with, so to speak, uh, amongst the Democrats? Is, is Should there be any accountability for things that went on during the Obama administration that have been called into question? You know, whether you're talking about Benghazi or you're talking about the Clinton Foundation, Uh, or or various other uh, scandals that were raised during that time? Well, I I think that uh, we can compare scandals in the Bush administration to the prior Clinton administration, uh, the Obama administration. I have to say, I think the Obama administration is generally a cleaner record than the Clinton, or, I mean, I dealt with the Bush administration, but still, we compare all of them. Uh, You know, there were scandals in each administration. 
Um, and we could bring them up. We could also exaggerate them. And I saw Democrats exaggerate some of the scandals in the Bush administration. And there are other scandals we had in the Bush years that were rightfully, um, uh, you know, condemned by Congress. Uh, obviously, the, the torture episode and so forth. So we could talk about past administrations, but this this situation is unique. And uh, I, I, it's awfully hard to understand the relationship between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. This We have not confronted this before, a president being this beholden a foreign leader. We have not confronted a president who actually said that people should be banned from our country because of their religion. Uh, we just don't consider that acceptable talk by a president of a Democrat or a Republican. Well, un- enough There's people been a did lot of stuff. Him. Enough people considered it acceptable enough for him to get elected president of the United States, though. Well, uh, th- that doesn't matter. Uh, uh, the point is that his conduct in office, the way he tweets, I mean, think about it, just objectively, instead of just talking about Hillary all the time and Hillary's stupid email server, which is a very stupid thing for her to do, it was not criminal. Uh, you know, to focus on, is this a normal president? Do we see other world leaders tweeting like maniacs this way? Uh, have we ever had a United States president be this way? Do we have senators who tweet this way? Well, here's a question for you. Will we ever have a, quote, normal presidency ever again? Because I feel as though, you know, part of what the the ascendancy of Donald Trump suggests is that people were sick and tired of normal. Well, I will tell you something. I mean, I strongly disagree with Mike Pence on a broad range of issues. Uh, but I think if he were in there, I don't think he'd be acting this way. Uh, I disagree with him on a lot of issues, and I can go through those, because uh, I think he represents the religious right and various elements that are very extremist in our society. But uh, when you look at the way Donald Trump acts, he's talking about revoking security clearances to retaliate against people who disagree with him. It goes on and on and on. Jeff Sessions today. Uh, just talking about lock her up in front of high school kids. And that's just disgusting. He's the Attorney General of the United States, and he's talking about lock her up for the candidate who lost the presidential election. I mean, you talk about that in, in some sort of military dictatorship where you don't want to have another election. He is the Attorney General. I mean, is there no sense of decency with these people? And this is why people, respectable people, are just leaving the Republican Party in droves. Now, that doesn't mean the Democrats don't have their problems. And you could bet if I'm going to be with the Democratic Party uh, in any capacity, I'm going to be taking on a corruption, whether it's sexual harassment scandals or whether it's uh, uh, the influence of the medical device companies that are uh, influencing both political parties, and that with the sulfide mining industry, uh, with a scandal going on there. I mean, there are a lot of things going on on the Democratic side as well that we need to look into. Because so, I'm going to assist on ethics of this government. So I have one final question for you, and we got about 20 seconds if we want to squeeze in some information about your campaign. And that question is, what is it about Republicanism and being a Republican that attracted you to the party in the first place? I uh, I joined the Republican Party. I grew up in central Illinois, and uh, a lot of people Republican. They just didn't like the daily machine up in New York. I mean, up in Chicago, which was... Uh, 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 you know, really cronyism, corrupt, racist. Uh, and so I think the Republican Party traditionally talked about individual liberty, uh, small government, uh, respect for people. Uh, you certainly didn't have this religious right element in the Republican Party in the old days. Those people came in later and then tried to take over. We believe strongly in a separation of church and state. The idea of condemning people, whether they're Muslims or 
uh, uh, some other religious faith that is just completely foreign to uh, the traditional uh, values of the Republican Party, or quite frankly, the United States of America. All right, real quick, where's the website where people can learn more about your campaign? Uh, PainterMinnesota.com. PainterMinnesota.com. Richard Painter in studio with us this hour. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. A provocative interview, that's the word I'm going to choose to use, provocative, with Richard Painter, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate, seeking the seat formerly held by Al Franken, currently held by Tina Smith. There's a lot of stuff we didn't get to talk about. It's amazing how quickly an hour goes by when uh, you have somebody who uh, has has long and uh, information-packed answers to your questions. The, the response that we've gotten from listeners is about what I would have expected to this particular interview. And I, I'm interested in, in hearing Brad's thoughts on how it went and uh, the, just his impression of Richard Painter as a candidate. We'll get into that here momentarily on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at your and your Radio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. Uh, on Twitter, some comments from listeners. A Pat said, I'm very, very tired of being told if we don't agree, we certainly must not fully understand the issues. Spoken like a true lefter. Hard to believe he was ever Republican. Uh, Anthony from St. Paul, regular call of the show, put out on Twitter, what the heck is this guy talking about? A whole hour, and I feel like I know less today than I did yesterday. <laughs> Mike in Farmington called back and said that um, we need to fumigate the room for the BS that he's spilling. <laughs> now, we did get a positive comment from Nathan, our, our resident progressive caller who calls in once in a while. He thanked us, said thanks for a great conversation, love hearing two principled and outside-the-box thinkers talking about politics well done and i also got a comment from a listener on facebook uh, whose name i won't disclose because it was sent privately uh, but she said i was very hesitant a very hesitant trump supporter or a very hesitant trump voter she said seemed like a choice between chocolate arsenic or strawberry arsenic either way we all die but having seen his performance since elected i'm totally on board i don't think i'm alone and i think that that i think that sentiment i think that's what painter misses and you know we get we had that that little exchange back and forth where at one point he said that Donald Trump is appealing to the lowest common denominator, and you know I kind of pushed back a little bit was like well hold hold on so you're saying that a guy got elected to president of the United States you know attracting the requisite votes necessary in order to cross the electoral college threshold by appealing to the lowest common denominator so what are you saying about the voters what are you saying about the people who voted for them and he kind of hemmed and hawed and I I didn't really feel as though a substantive response was given to that objection he's the perfect politician already (laughs) but i think that this this comment that i got on facebook is indicative of what he's missing that there is a block of people out there who support donald trump you know they they may have voted for him hesitantly they may have voted for him with reservations but since the election things have changed since the election of 2016 and they've changed in such a way as to calcify 
the support that Donald Trump has. This is something that, you know, perhaps we'll get to here later in the program. I have a number of of pieces that I've wanted to reference to make this point, which is that Trump is Teflon. I mean, he's just absolute Teflon. In fact, let's let's go. I'm I'm just going to skip ahead, throw the whole plan out of alignment here and bring this up because this is fascinating. The Wall Street Journal has a piece. Donald Trump's approval rating inches higher buoyed by Republican support. This is dated uh, earlier this week. President Donald Trump's approval rating edged higher during a week in which he faced withering criticism following a summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin, signaling that his position to weather the latest controversy sparked by his unusual brand of politics. Mr. Trump's job approval rating rose to 45% in a new Wall Street Journal NBC News poll, the highest mark of his presidency, and up 1% point from June. The survey was taken over a four-day period that started July 15th, a day before Mr. Trump's news conference with Mr. Putin, in which he questioned the conclusion of U.S. intelligence agencies that Russia meddled in the 2016 election. Now, think about this. Think about all of the rhetoric that was deployed. And we just heard some of it echoed here uh, on the program from Mr. Painter. All the rhetoric coming out of Helsinki along the lines of this is treasonous, this is unprecedented, we've never seen anything like this before from a president, it's so irresponsible. Even people who have been diehard supporters of Donald Trump, like Newt Gingrich, Newt Gingrich called this the biggest mistake of Donald Trump's presidency. Now, setting aside any value judgment of whether or not, you know, of, of the actual performance in Helsinki and the, the particular criticisms of that performance, just think about the fact that in the midst of all of that, what is arguably the biggest misstep of Donald Trump's presidency to date, his approval rating went up. Not only did it go up, it hit an all-time high. This is astounding. This is astounding, and it indicates to me that Trump's support is, is to a large degree calcified and what i mean by that is that there's there's people who are on board with him and they are simply not going to move they are never going to move off of that support because to their minds this is an existential and we've heard some of this from callers that this is an existential situation that we find ourselves in where it's us or the left and we must prevail and we must stick with our guy we must follow our general you know this is something that uh, occurred to me over the weekend i was reflecting upon the the show we had last thursday where i spent a lot of time talking about the culture of conquest versus the culture of consent and how these two forces interact and how i'm i've been dismayed by what i regard to be the infiltration of the culture of conquest into the republican party and into the conservative movement you know i i don't i think that when we forget what it is that we're fighting for when we forget what it is that we're fighting toward we lose something that's truly indispensable and i fear that that's happened to a significant degree within the republican party but as i was reflecting on it over the weekend and reflecting upon some of the calls that I've gotten and some of the feedback that I, that I got from that particular show, the image that popped into my mind was George C. Scott and his portrayal of Patton in that classic film. And I thought about it and I realized, you know, Donald Trump is the conservative movement's Patton, a, a general who is fearless, who is unconventional, foul-mouthed, doesn't necessarily follow the rules, but is hell-bent on conquering the enemy 
and grinding them into the dirt. And, and for a lot of folks, that's what we need right now. And they're willing to suffer through him slapping around soldiers in a hospital who are cowering, who are shell-shocked, right? They're willing to endure that. They're willing to endure all of his faults in service of beating the enemy, defeating the enemy, and winning the war. And when I think about it in those terms, I understand it more than I have in the past. I still don't know if I agree with it but I certainly understand it more than I have in the past. Let's talk to Mike in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Good evening, Walter. Yeah. I feel like a kid on Christmas morning. Which box did I want to open? Um, <laughs> I, I tell you, <laughs> this guy, Mr. Painter, just to me exemplifies the haughtiness of, of the particular party now. I mean, to, to actually go there... And, and like you said, you had that little pushback with him, you know, as, as if uh, with the smelly Walmart uh, supporters. Yeah, right. You know, he uh, just doesn't get it. We, we don't want a typical president anymore. Sure. Um, the, the Republicans that are, are leaving, as he says, they're leaving. You know, I, I give you kudos for bringing them on, but, uh, boy, he skated out pretty easily. So, you know, I'll, I'll do what Sue Jeffers would say. What a moron! <laughs> appreciate the call as always, Mike, and always appreciate uh, evoking Sue. Sue's Sue's my favorite. She's good people. It's been a long time since I've had a conversation with Sue. Way too long, and we need to do a little uh, little inter show exchange. I need to come on her show. She needs to come on mine, and and that'll be uh, that'll be a good time. All right, so let's let's get into some other stuff. Well, actually, I wanted to before we move on to other topics. Brad, did you have any thoughts or impressions or insights coming out of our time with Richard Painter tonight? Well, I I guess I have a better impression of him when he came out with his dumpster fire ad. Um, I thought that was just like Ted Nugent level crazy, but <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, it it was actually kind of a smart move, even if it was uh, an intellectually shallow ad, you could say, um, because it made people pay attention to him. He's like, sure. who is this right. guy? This head right. is crazy. And um, so I, I had been paying attention to him, at least uh, from a you know kind of a cursory standpoint since then. But, I mean, I could vote for any politician and, ju- and disagree with them as much as I would disagree with Richard Painter, you know. Mm-hmm. I, but I think that he's smart. He at least knows... I can respect how he thinks and what he, and what he thinks about the issues because I... I understand that he is at least coming to those conclusions, hopefully on an intellectually sound level. He has he has thought through. He knows why he believes what yes. he believes, and I and I, I can at least respect that. Right. Um. I think that his his calling Trump's actions treasonous are a little uh are a little harsh, but I think that um. I understand, again, why he's doing it, because it's a good rally well, cry sure, for the exactly. DFL. And it was very fascinating to me when I asked him about that, and I said, you know, look, the, the Constitution has a definition of treason, and this obviously doesn't fit. And basically what he said was, you're right, that it doesn't fit, but that's not what I mean. I don't mean treasonous in a constitutional sense. I mean treasonous in, in order to, as a rhetorical device, basically, to indicate the level of severity of how bad this is, which I thought was a cute answer. I don't know. I mean, I, and again, like you say, I understand the political utility of referring to it that way, but it doesn't come without cost, right? Like you, 
one of the things that the left is constantly saying in regards to this whole interaction with Russia and the relationship between Trump and Russia is they're constantly talking about the undermining of confidence in American institutions. And, you know, they blame Donald Trump for undermining confidence in the FBI, undermining confidence in the DOJ, uh, undermining our, our alliances with allies around the country and what have you. Well, what effect do you think it has of having people out in the public discourse calling the president of the United States a traitor? You don't think that has an undermining effect on the, the confidence that people have in the stability of the American electoral system, political system? Of course it does. And so, you know, it, until there's some sense of of s- stability and, you know, moral uh, high ground uh, on the other side, until until they're actually exhibiting this dignity that they claim to want from Donald Trump, it seems a little bit disingenuous. It, it comes off that way. I, I'm not saying it came off that way from Richard Painter necessarily. You know, I think from his perspective, he... I, it's, it, it, it seems to me to just be a blind spot. Like he legitimately doesn't see that people people aren't fitting into the category that he's established for them. Well, I think that his assumption or categorization of Trump voters, I, I guess I would agree that Trump did pander to the lowest common denominator. He absolutely did. But the Democrats tried to do it, too. And in the race to the bottom, the ugly underbelly won. And but I think part of that is maybe just due to the fact of who he is and who he hangs out with. You know, I've had discussions with friends too of like, oh, well, you don't understand what, what real people are like because you live in the cities and you work from home three days a week and you, and, uh, you know, you, you work with smart people and you just, you just don't get it. And and so I understand maybe why, again, why he thinks that way. And, but I do agree with him that Trump pandered to the lowest common denominator. Um, but I know a lot of, I know a lot of, smart people who voted for Trump too and right. people that I respect that I know right. voted for Trump and who could justify their reason for voting for Trump too. So I, I don't I think that his categorization of people who voted for Trump is wrong, but I agree with his larger assessment. All right. Well I, I want to expound upon that when we return because you know we never quite got to it when we had Richard Painter in studio with us. We didn't have enough time. But I wanted to kind of highlight the spectrum of never Trump because both he and I at various points identified as never Trump. Obviously, we've come to very different conclusions regarding how to to proceed from having held that position. And I want to kind of share how it is that I ended up where I'm at versus where Painter finds himself. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, the number to join us this evening. We had Richard Painter, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate, in with us during the first hour. And he has made his name in recent months and years as one of the harshest critics of President Donald Trump and is certainly indicative of a particular brand of never Trumper. And uh, I myself identified during the 2016 election campaign as never Trump. And yet there is quite the... uh, spectrum of difference between where Richard Painter stands and where I stand. And I want to try to illustrate why that is, you know, how I came to different conclusions here. 
before we dive into some other topics of the evening. So, like you know, when when Richard Painter talks about Donald Trump having appealed to the lowest common denominator, and when we hear complaints from the left about racism and sexism and appealing to the alt right and white supremacists and what have you. There's a degree to which that criticism is merited. A degree, a very particular degree, and I'm about to articulate it. During the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump found himself attracting support, vocal, very fervent, and loud support from a particular group within the fringes of American society known as the alt-right. And the alt-right you know, was a, has, has been misunderstood, you know, was certainly misunderstood at the, at the time and has remained largely misunderstood in no small part due to the, the intentional misinformation campaigns of the alt-right and of the left, both of whom have a vested interest in obfuscating and confusing people as to what the alt-right actually is. What the alt-right actually is is pretty straightforward. It's just white nationalism. That's all it is. It's just white supremacy. That's all it is. The alt-right is to white nationalism what progressives are to communism, right? It's just, it's the same thing with a more marketable name. That's it. The guy who came up with the term is Richard Spencer, who's the president of an organization called the National Policy Institute. And he he's spoken and written at length as to his reasoning behind coming up with the term alt-right, alternative right. It was a marketing ploy. He wants to be able to, and there's a, there's a uh, documentary on Netflix. I forget the name it off, offhand, but they, this gal goes around and sits down and talks with and investigates a lot of white nationalist groups in America. And you know, it's actually kind of comical in a horrible sort of way, the extent to which they've taken on this sort of marketing campaign. And they're like, you know, maybe we should drop the swastika. Maybe, maybe that might be, we might be able to be a little bit more palatable, a little bit more mainstream if we get rid of the explicit Nazi references, you know, and this is like sincerely, genuinely, they want to be better perceived. And so they're thinking, what can we do in order to market ourselves better? And that's what the alt-right is. And so when the alt-right started to explicitly endorse Trump and get excited about Trump and say how great Trump was and how what he was saying was right in line with what they were prescribing for public policy in the United States, it raised a huge red flag for me in no small part due to the fact that the alt-right regards my existence as the product and participant in interracial marriage as a attack upon the very identity and soul of the United States of America. They see me and my children as a direct existential threat to the ethnic unity of America. And they're not shy about it. In fact, it's the whole point of what they do. And so when people like that start saying, hey, we think this guy's great. We think this guy is, is, is our guy. He's going to lift us up and take us into the 21st century. And the reaction from that candidate is, meh, eh, whatever, as long as you vote for me. It's uh, a little bit concerning, right? And so to that extent, I... I found myself on the same page 
as Richard Painter when he was thinking, you know, these this is the lowest common denominator that Trump is appealing to in 2016. Now, here's what happened. This is where the paths diverge, though. After the election, in fact, on election night, when Donald Trump won, I found myself confronted with a paradox. Because, and, the, and this is the moment that Richard Painter clearly has not had. I realized that, you know, I've been active within the Republican Party for, you know, almost 10 years. Eight years at this point, 2016. I've been active for a long time. I've gotten to know tons of people at all levels of the party infrastructure here in the state of Minnesota. I've national figures. You know, I, I toured around the Capitol with uh, Louis Gohmert in Washington, D.C. You know, I've, I've known Republicans for a long time, and I know them to be good, decent people who do not comport with or in any way endorse or accept the vile premises and worldview of the alt-right. So how do I reconcile this? How is it that so many people who I know to be good people could support a candidate who was lukewarm in his refutation of the worst among us, the people who really are the lowest common denominator? I'm speaking specifically of the alt-right. And in the subsequent months and years since then, the, the conclusion that I've come to is what I already expressed earlier this hour which is that for a lot of people, particularly those for whom the, the issue of, of race and racism is not a potent part of their daily experience, for a lot of people, they never took any of that stuff seriously. They dismissed it as fringe and irrelevant and a distraction from what Donald Trump really was and what it was that he was trying to accomplish. And they've imbued Trump with this kind of patent-like quality where he's the general. He's the guy who's been tasked with leading us in our conquering of the enemy, which must be destroyed in order to save our very existence from a leftist mob that wants to destroy us. That's the mentality that fueled support for Donald Trump and sustains support for Donald Trump. And when, when the stakes are that high, when the stakes are existential, you tend not to care as much about issues of style, issues of rhetoric, issues of conduct, right? That, that's peripheral and that's on the, the, the edges of the substance, on the edges of the core mission. You know, again, using the, the comparison, the illustration of Patton, there are a lot of things that there are a lot of characteristics of George Patton that were not particularly attractive characteristics, but. Those were all, you, we weren't going to focus on any of those because the guy knew how to fight a war. And that's what we needed in the time that he was so empowered. And in a similar sense, that's where we find ourselves with Donald Trump today. And so to come to the conclusion, which Richard Penner seems to have, that there's something, you know, morally wrong with the people who are continuing to support Donald Trump is to miss a very uh, a, a very noteworthy and important forest from the trees of some fringe groups that are not representative or indicative of a larger movement in this country. Closing argument, my name is Walter Edson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Like All right, so there has been some response 
to the Star Tribune expose over the weekend that detailed just how negligent, I'm going to go ahead and use that word, negligent law enforcement has been in the investigation and uh, prosecution of sexual assault cases in this state. And uh, it was we talked about it at length last night, and there's been response both from public officials and from readers of the Star Tribune, which prompted follow-up pieces that I want to share with you. And uh, hopefully, I, I believe actually Thursday, this actually is confirmed, I just re- recalled. Thursday, we're going to have State Representative Nick Zerwas uh, on the phone, I believe. I don't think he's going to come in for this. Uh, to talk about, uh, expound upon his investigation. He's, uh, according to one of these articles here, looking into legislative responses to this Star Tribune investigation. And I'm also working on, hopefully, potentially, getting a particular congressman to come in on the show and talk about what he has in store at the federal level. We'll see if those uh, if those arrangements pan out here later in the week. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. From the Star Tribune, lawmakers and law enforcement leaders across the political spectrum expressed outrage Monday at reports of breakdowns in the investigation of sexual assault in Minnesota and called for measures to guarantee justice for women who report rape. Now, just right there, you know, I'm going to be a little bit critical of some of the ways in which people are responding to this, just to get, just to warn you, because, you know, I think there's a pretty, you, you can already guess, like the script is almost written in terms of how people who are in positions of authority and power are supposed to react to this type of expose. Right off the bat, when your promise is we're going to, we're going to come up with some law that we're going to pass that's going to quote guarantee justice for women who report rape. Here's the thing about justice. Here's the thing about humanity. There are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. That That's not the promise that you ought to be making. Don't promise me that you're going to guarantee justice because that's a promise you cannot fulfill. Promise me that you're going to do everything within reason to devote the resources required to ensure that every case is appropriately and thoroughly investigated. Now, that's not as sexy. That's not as as eye-catching and provocative in terms of political support. But it does have the virtue of being accurate and presenting something that's actually measurable and attainable, which is kind of important when you're dealing with something as serious as uh, this scenario here. Continue with the Star Tribune. These stories of sexual assault are horrific, said State Senator Warren Lemmer, Republican from Maple Grove, chairman of the Senate Public Safety Committee. It's indefensible that cases like these with ample evidence would go uninvestigated. The comments came a day after the Star Tribune published a special report documenting pervasive failings in the way Minnesota law enforcement agencies investigate sexual assault. The analysis, which examined more than 1,000 sexual assault reports, from 2015 and 2016 found hundreds of cases in which police departments failed to interview witnesses, collect evidence, or even assign detectives to rape cases. At a Capitol News conference, State Representative Aaron Murphy, who's running for governor, 
said she would make the findings an issue for her campaign this fall. Murphy, a St. Paul DFLer, called the improved training of police investigators and legislation to ensure that all rape kits are tested, among other changes. Several other gubernatorial candidates also called for reform. U.S. Representative Tim Walls, a DFLer from southern Minnesota, said he spoke with a constituent last year who said she, too, faced multiple obstacles in trying to report a rape. When survivors of sexual assault courageously come forward, they deserve a process that provides them with respect, dignity, and justice. Unfortunately, this is all too often not the case, Walls said. Minnesota Attorney General Lori Swanson, a third DFL candidate for governor, said in a statement, Failing to interview witnesses or follow up on key evidence is simply inexcusable. When women report sexual assault, it must be taken with the utmost seriousness and fully investigated. Former Governor Tim Pawlenty, running on the Republican side of the governor's race, said he would like to see the state's police licensing board develop statewide standards for sexual assault investigations. Law enforcement agencies and prosecutors need to focus on better investigation and prosecution of these violent offenders, Pawlenty said. Governor Mark Dayton said he admired the courage of the women who stepped forward to describe their assaults and their encounters with police. They should not have to endure more traumas caused by the indifference or inaction of people responsible for bringing those vile offenders to justice, Dayton said in a statement. State Representative Nick Zerwas, an Elk River Republican who sits on the House Public Safety Committee, called the newspaper's findings shocking and said he was already starting to research possible legislation. Zerwas said he wants to examine whether police need additional training and resources for sexual assault investigations. Sex assaults are some of the most challenging crimes to investigate, said Zerwas, who has worked as a forensics examiner at the Anoka County Crime Lab. Now, that's something I did not know about Representative Zerwas, that he had that background in forensics uh, investigation and examination. So that will come into play when we talk to him on Thursday uh, regarding his response and subsequent research into this expose at the Star Tribune. And, you know, the one thing that I fear, you know, if as you continue to go forward here, there's uh, Representative Dave Pinto, a DFL from St. Paul, who also sits on the House Public Safety Committee, who said he would press the state's police licensing board to enact a model protocol for responding to sex assaults. He also wants to consider increasing funding for investigations. This is the response that I do not like. The, oh, let's throw more money at it. Yeah, you know, there aren't enough resources. We need to come up with more revenue. We need to come up with more funds. No, you don't. That's not the answer. It's not that the people who aren't doing their job don't have enough money to not do it. That's not the problem. The problem is that they're not doing it. They have the resources. They're just devoting them in other directions. You know, we t- when we talked with Jamar last night, you know, this was uh, in, in true bipartisan fashion, a point of common agreement we were able to come to is that, you know, there are plenty of cops on the street. There are plenty of people out there investigating stuff. They're just not investigating the right stuff. Their focus is on the easy convictions they can get for nonviolent victimless crimes and the drug war, raising revenue by, you know, policing traffic and trying to catch people going five miles over the limit or not wearing their seatbelt or whatever the case may be. And that's where all the resources are focused. It's not focused on the things that we properly ought to have a law enforcement agency for primarily, which is the investigation and prosecution of people who are are guilty of heinous crimes involving a victim like murder, rape, and assault. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. The problem with solving this problem is that inside of Minnesota, the answers are, are not political. 
palatable to the Democratic Party, who basically right now runs the state. Um, but the, the answer is very simply, you take away money away from these parts that aren't doing the job. Sure. And then you start start firing people who are making these promises to these victims and not following through on these promises. Now, not everybody is going to get convicted. Not everybody is going to get the right response. Right. We right. understand that. But that's not what we're asking. What we're asking is, would you say something to a victim that you keep your word, just like every good person would? Right. That's all we're asking. Right. I appreciate the, the thoughts, Barry. You know, the... There's a larger, and and this is another thing that nobody who's responding to this in an official capacity as a as a public official, this is not something you're going to hear from the likes of you know Mark Dayton or you know anybody who's running for public office or who's holding public office. What this indicates is a systemic problem with the law enforcement institution as such, and you know the. I want to I want to articulate this as precisely and effectively as I can because my purpose here is not to demonize people who are engaged in the task of law enforcement. We need our laws to be enforced. Well, we we need laws against murder and rape to be enforced. Let's put it that way. The problem is is that we have we have a system whereby the the incentives are all wrong. The incentives are to proactively go after low-hanging fruit in order to secure the raising of revenue and convictions in order to put feathers in people's caps in order to advance their careers. And, you know, that's that's people reacting to the incentives that have been provided to them by a system that's been designed this way. And so the solution is to redesign the system. And the, the model that I would point to and this is going to seem like it's coming out of left field for you, for a lot of folks. But this, the model that I would look to is biblical justice. And you heard me right. Biblical. The Mosaic Law was both more severe and more lenient. And it operated in a completely different way than current modern-day law enforcement does. The, the determination of guilt was something that was established through through witnesses and through investigation and was determined by a, a judicial ruling. And then once the guilt had been determined, then the task was put forward to, to apprehend the person and to see that they met with whatever form of justice was appropriate. And that form of, in, in the uh, mosaic sense, was never putting them in jail. It was never prison. Like, that form of punishment didn't exist. The, the, the punishment was a restoration of the victim. You know, if they stole something, they had to pay it back and then some for the trouble of having taken it in the first place. If they committed certain crimes, such as this, such as rape or murder or, or uh, it a, ascended a, a, to a certain level, they were put to death. And that's the sense in which it was more severe. And if people accused people falsely, which has obviously been a problem in the past, particularly in the in the cases of of sexual assault, we have had instances where false claims were made. The, the punishment for a false accusation was that you met with whatever punishment was due to the person you accused, which in the mosaic sense would have been being put to death. Now, that's extraordinarily harsh, but it has the effect of tempering the justice system towards the objective of 
actual justice, which ought to be the point. We need to reevaluate, you know, do we want to have a system whereby people are paid and people are recognized and are able to advance their careers based upon criteria and achievements that really don't have anything directly to do with the actual achievement of justice in a real sense? Or do we want to redesign our justice system so that the incentives are such that, you know, people have, who have truly been victimized are restored and put right? 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, going to close out tonight with uh, a smattering of stories completely unrelated to one another, but each of which are fascinating in their own right. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Let's begin at CNN. The headline, Americans can legally download 3D printed guns starting next month. Now, this is a story that I somehow missed. I don't know how we missed this last week, but it was brought to my attention by a friend and uh, an activist who was really excited about this and the implications that it has for Second Amendment rights going forward. Gun rights activists have reached a settlement with the government that will allow them to post 3D printable gun plans online starting August 1st. The settlement ends a multi-year legal battle that started when Cody Wilson, who describes himself as a post-left anarchist, boy, I would really love to pick his brain and find out what in God's name that means, posted plans for a 3D printed handgun called the Liberator in 2013. The single-shot pistol was made almost entirely out of the ABS plastic, the same stuff they make Lego bricks out of, that could be made on a 3D printer. The only metal parts were the firing pin and a piece of metal included to comply with the Undetectable Firearms Act. The U.S. State Department told Wilson and his nonprofit group Defense Distributed to take down the plans. It said the plans could violate international traffic and arms regulations, which regulate the export of defense materials, services, and technical data. Uh, now that you say his name, I realize that I uh, have interacted with this guy before. He was on a show that I used to produce uh, back in my GCN days called Freedom Fiends, and I think I have his number. So interesting. Well, maybe yeah, maybe we can have him on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That would that would that would be fantastic. I would love to talk to this guy. Continuing at CNN, in essence, officials said someone in another country, a country the U.S. doesn't sell weapons to, could download the material and make their own gun. Wilson complied, but said the files already have been downloaded a million times. He sued the federal government in 2015. The settlement, which is dated June 29th, says that Wilson and Defense Distributed can publish plans, files, and 3D drawings in any form and exempts them from the export restrictions. The government also agreed to pay almost $40,000 of Wilson's legal fees and to refund some registration fees. This, this is unheard of for the government to roll over like this. Yeah, where was that when uh, when Howard was dealing yeah, with them? Yeah, when Howard Root was having his issues, this would have been fantastic. The settlement has not been made public, but Wilson's attorneys provided a copy to CNN. We asked for the moon, and we figured the government would reject it, but they didn't want to go to trial, said Alan M. Uh, Gottlieb with the Second Amendment Foundation, which helped in the case. The government fought us all the way, and then all of a sudden folded their tent. 
Gottlieb said they filed the lawsuit during the Obama administration, but he doesn't think that explains the change of heart. These were all career people that we were dealing with. I don't think there was anything political about it, he said. Avery Gardner, the co-president of the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence, said she'd be astonished if the settlement wasn't approved by political appointees. We were shocked and disappointed that the Trump administration would make a secret backroom deal with very little notice, Gardner said. She said she found out about the settlement from a magazine article. That's fantastic. The group has <laughs> the group has filed a Freedom of Information Act request for emails and other documents related to the settlement. So, you know, my bottom line on this is that, you know, just, just like with all technology, you can't, you know, patents are one thing, right? Like if we actually, if, if there was a, a intellectual property issue here, but there's not, obviously. The, the, the people in question are willingly selling or not sharing, I should say, the information that they have on how to print these things. Once a technological genie is out of the bottle, there is no putting it back in. And, you know, later on in the article here, they, they get to talking about this, the fact that the, you can only hold back the dam of information for so long. And we are going to very quickly get to the point where it is easy for anybody to produce their own weapon. Now, there are two different ways that you could choose to react to that. One is to freak out and think that we're on the verge of going to some sort of, you know, Mad Max or Westworld type dystopia where there's going to be, you know, blood in the streets because everybody's going to have, you know, Lego guns shooting at each other <laughs> and uh, engaging in assault and murder. The other is to realize, quite reasonably, that the proliferation of weapons amongst the general populace is going to have an effect upon the way people interact with each other. If you don't know whether or not the person you're approaching is armed, whether or not the person who just cut you off in traffic is armed or not, you're going to think twice about how you interact with them. Well, and it doesn't diminish property rights at all. Like no. private venues still have the right to say, we don't want guns in here. That's correct. And they have the right to enforce those rules if they so choose with guns. It's entirely within their own purview. Uh, you know, there's uh, uh, a article here about the upcoming election that Vice News kind of wrings their hands over the lack of security for uh, the election that's coming up here in November. We'll get into talking about that tomorrow, I think, because I definitely have some thoughts as to how we secure our electoral process from Russians and more likely others domestically who are interested in interfering with the outcomes. Closing argument, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Glenn Beck is next. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.